December 16, 2018, lecture discussion number 48 on the book of Joel. Before I get started, we're, going to, we're rolling a little early, so I'm going to take some time here. I've got a few letters to go through for you from the Internet, a few things to go through. First off, I'll, I'll dispense with this. Parents say priest told mourners that son may be kept out of heaven over suicide. You'll see that a lot. That's very common. It's been around for, for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, because the church could not have the people committing suicide. It costs money. Not only do you kill a revenue stream, but you have to take care of the burial aspect of it. So they said suicide was an uh, unforgivable cardinal sin, and that if you committed suicide, you were doomed forever. Do you think, based on just what you know of the nature of God, that suicide would, would condemn you? Is it... Do you really think, does anybody really think that that's true? Yes, hopefully not here. It's not true. I'll deal with it in, uh, in the weeks to come after we come back from the uh, mid-winter break. Uh, as you know, last week I said that I had issues with this eye, and I do. Um, I still have it. Uh, I was unable to get back to... Uh, uh, to my uh, doctor at any length this last week. I have to go back in the coming week, Thursday. Uh, um, they're still not certain of what treatment is available for me, if any. Probably none. It's just something I have to deal with. So I see dimly through this eye. Uh, it looks like I'm looking through a glass that has been shot by a sandblasting uh, method. So I got this letter from Jennifer, who supposedly lives in Arizona, but we know that no one can actually live in Arizona. It's not possible. There's no water. There's, it's a desert. There's only snakes and poisonous little things crawling around. So maybe she's not from Arizona, but maybe she is. We don't know. I can't be sure. She writes, we see through an angry Gerber baby darkly which I thought was very good, because uh, that's exactly what I've got. I've got this face that I, resembles a Gerber baby sneering at me. I also got this from uh, Sherry. And we don't even know where Sherry lives either, do we? Uh, we have no idea. And she writes, Dear one-eyed fat man and quasi-imaginary friend, <laughs> you are probably quite busy with the aftermath of, of quakes and blizzards, general hurdles, living in Alaska in winter, grandkids, your daily job as supervisor, weekly term paper writing, and your issues related to the advanced aging process. So it seems like a perfect time to describe a muddled mess I call a letter, being the helper I am. <laughs> Sincerely hope your vitreous detachment resolves on its own sooner rather than later, though I'm really hoping you wear the patch at the next lecture, because you are correct, patches are cool. And she goes on, she says, you brought up Ecclesiastes um, and a, a lot of stuff that I... Uh, I did Ecclesiastes as a Wednesday night, didn't I, Dave? I think I did. This is a Wednesday night, so I don't know if there's any record of it. But she points out that it's all vanity. And she's wanting to recognize that what is it that I am supposed to do that really has any value? Uh, one thing you can learn from Solomon is at the end of it, 
of Ecclesiastes, he says, listen, there's only one thing you can do. Everything else is relatively um, temporal. So find that which is permanent. Uh, but she brings up another question. And her other question is, is that the Bible talks about slavery. And I have gotten this over the years quite a bit. I did it many, many years ago. I'll do it really quickly because... I think it has great value to know. I think if I look back at my so-called career, I think I believe I started with a little bit of the slavery issue. I'll give you this verse. Because there are those who say, and, and Sherry has come across someone of this predisposition, that the Bible is a, a proponent of slavery. Here is the verse that whenever you talk about slavery in the Bible, here's where you go first. You start at Exodus 21. And this is the law concerning servants. If a master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. And he, the servant, shall go out by himself. But... If the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him forever. That is a picture of the triune Godhead. Most will think it is about human slavery. And it has some application to the Jewish nation. Slavery was predominant at the time that the Jews left Egypt. After all, the Jews were what in Egypt? Slaves. So they had an idea about slavery, but God also has an idea. And the Bible, Christ does exactly Exodus 21. He says, I love my wife. I love my children. And he is forever uh, having added humanity. And he has the piercings. So all of that is about Christ. And as you go through the Bible, Deuteronomy 15, 15 through 18 is the complement to that section. As you go through the Bible and you look at slavery, the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, how does this particular verse testify of Christ? When you have that perspective, you will find the answers. And slavery will unfold into this Extraordinary thing. God was very, very careful to make sure that slavery was dealt with in a way that he found appropriate. By appropriate, it testifies of Christ. Uh, so I have one other thing to say before we get to the lecture. I have a wonderful lady in, let me get the thing that she wrote here, if I can find it, in Cincinnati. She is my favorite in Cincinnati. In all of Cincinnati, Joni from Cincinnati is the favorite. It's not even close. Did I not? What did I do with her little thing that she sent us? I am. It's probably right here, and I just can't see it. There it is. Two Cliffside Community Church fellow weird members from Joni in Cincinnati. Greetings in sugar from a fellow weird worshiper in Cincinnati. Wish I could be there for the pregame buffet uh, earthquakes. Uh, she said earthquakes aside. Please, and she exhorts you, please laugh at pastor's jokes for me. 
So obviously we're a little deficient in that and, uh, and it needs to be done. So Joni clearly is the favorite in Cincinnati. And after this, she might be taking all of Ohio. I think it's possible. So she sent us this for the buffet. Some of you, based on her instructions, let me repeat that. Please laugh at pastor's jokes. Based on that, performance level are eligible for this at the buffet. So thank you, Joni. Uh, we really appreciate you guys out there on the Internet. Now, let me say this. Uh, it's the end of the year. The Internet mem- uh, listening audience, the vast Internet audience, has been extraordinary. There are many times we, we look around and go, wow, we're not going to make it much further doing this stuff. And then the Internet audience just responds to us, and, um, and it has made the last, oh, my goodness. How long have you been doing this, Dave? If you exist, seven years, the response has been something that we could never have anticipated, and it has given us a great deal of encouragement, and uh, we can't thank you enough. And you folks know who you are. I could name you all. I really could. I actually could name everybody who has written us, uh, said anything to us. We keep uh, a pretty good record of you. We want to know who you are. It's very important. Now, we will never send you pictures of us ever at any time because... Of the legal ramifications that uh, people come to Alaska for a singular reason, uh, and just uh, uh, we need to make that clear. But uh, again, seriously, the you folks on the internet are amazing, and uh, we are so thankful. And we could not have kept going without you. That is just the absolute truth. Okay, here we are, December sixteenth, lecture uh, two thousand eight, lecture discussion number forty eight on the Book of Joel. Throughout my so-called career in the professional ecclesiastical domain, which, of course, makes me an ecclesiastic, doesn't necessarily sound very good, does it? But it is what it is. I have attempted to demonstrate, it's been my singular effort, if you will, the magnificent order and symmetry and the astounding complexity of the Bible. It's unexplainable. It cannot be explained, this incredible interconnectivity, and it matches the physical creation, including your and my body, any living organism. The amount of irreducible complexity that is there is absolutely evident in Scripture. This cannot be comprehended fully. It just can't. There's too much information. It's overwhelming. Um, There is a cause and effect in the physical reality, and that is also here in the Bible. And this complexity uh, is unexplainable, especially to those who insist on a monistic or a, uh, a monistic creation, a perspective that is physicalism through a physical process, if you will. If you have that belief system, that approach is never going to find anything in the Bible. So those of you in the Internet audience that don't like me, most of these are what do we call a, um, theistic evolutionists. In other words, they believe that God used a cruel, killing, devouring process where the weak are destroyed by the strong in order to propagate or create life on the earth. It's just ridiculous. It's against every tenant of Scripture. It's the opposite of, of what God says. But if you somehow have managed to, you want evolution, monism to be so true, physicalism to be so true in order to get respect from those who insist on it, 
that you will co-opt it into a belief system that supposedly is consistent with Scripture. It is not. And you will never, with that belief approach, find the truths of Scripture. It is just not going to happen. Scripture only manifests itself when the reader understands the spiritual origin of it, revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. Evolution denies the spiritual component completely. It's monistic. Again, it's an atheistic fundamental. But once you see that this this is a spiritual origin, then and only then the great truth will be found to boil it all down. Nothing in this world makes any sense apart from which that is which is given in the Bible. In other words, the Bible will solve everything in this world, and it is the only source that will do that. Let me give you just a quick Joel reference example. Joel explains, gosh, can't talk. Joel explains the sun and the moon. Just spend a little time on the moon. What do you end up doing? What's the first thing the moon will lead you to? It'll lead you to tide systems. How about the sun? That's nuclear fusion. That's light. Joel explains the sun and the moon. The prophecy of Joel, the the, the prophecy, prophecy that Joel has given us through the Holy Spirit is central to the sun and the moon questions. You've got a sun and a moon question? Go to Joel. And you might remember a while back, I think in July, I got a letter from a gentleman. He was a math physicist. Um, his name was Gabriel. A few months ago, he had his mother was Karen. Karen happened to be born on Cinco de Stevo. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Which is a blessing for Karen to be born on Cinco de Stevo. And it has absolutely nothing to do with mayonnaise, like most people think. That this isn't true. It's obvious. Anyway, Gabriel was trying to consider the solar calendar and the lunar calendar and why they seemed to be irreconcilable. He wanted a nice, neat, orderly fit. Uh, and that's what he was concerned about. Wonderful subject. And Joel provides an element that explains the sun and the moon. He provides the day of the Lord component. Now, remember, the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord are both the day of the Lord, but they're not the same day of the Lord. Does that make any sense? Because that's the way it works. You have to understand there is a day of the Lord and then there are a day, then there is a day of the Lord. They're both the day of the Lord, but when you read them, they're not the same day of the Lord. So know your day of the Lord. It's like knowing your Gog and Magog. Same kind of thing. And Joel provides the day of the Lord into the discussion about the sun and the moon. You see, once you've established John 8, 12, that Jesus Christ is the light of life, the light that causes life, then you know what? That the sun did not cause life. It can't. It might affect life, but it can't cause it. Then the obvious question is obvious. What's the purpose of the sun? It didn't cause life. Christ did that himself. He is the light that causes life. John 8, 12. Keep saying that. What's the purpose of the sun? And once you have that question 
ready to go. And Joel will help you. He'll assign the son to the day of the Lord. So you begin to recognize what the purpose will be. It has something to do with the day of the Lord. Which day of the Lord do you think it is? It is the day of the Lord. Once you know what the purpose of the son is, what's the next obvious question? Why is the son eliminated? Let's cover that really fast because the son is eliminated. Done that a couple of times, but let's do it again. Uh, 22.5. There shall be no night there. This is, uh, he talks first about the pure river of the water of life because he is the water of life and he is the light of life. And then he goes on to say, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. That is the Apostle John talking about the elimination of the sun. Now let's go to Genesis 1. Because as you will have already surmised, if the sun is ended, then I can compare the ending of the sun to what? The beginning of the sun. The sun has a beginning and an end. That's valuable information. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. Let me repeat that. The greater light to rule the day. Why is the greater light ruling the day? Why do we need a ruler of the day? And the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars. This is my favorite word here. So we're talking about the sun and the moon and also the stars. There are no insignificant words in Scripture. And also the star. What's the order? Sun, moon, also stars. The stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. That's their purpose, to give light. But wait a minute. He's light. Why doesn't he do it himself? Why is he doing this? What is the difference between him doing it and, and this system doing it? Will the system work without him? God set them on the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over... Why do they need to be rule? Rulers. To rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. So I have ruling and I have division. So obviously it's a math issue. And to divide the night light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So on the evening and that morning were the fourth day. Boy, oh boy, does that keep coming up, that fourth day. Okay, the sun and moon are instituted at Genesis 1, 17, 19, and the complement to 1, 17, 19 of Genesis is Revelation 22, 5. They feather together. If you're going to do Genesis, the fourth day, Genesis 1, 17 through 19, then you, you better go immediately to 22 of Revelation and see how it how it resolves. Don't you, when you have a mystery book that you bought, they're all the same. They always are easy to figure out. Just read the first chapter, find out who the characters are, flip to the back. There's the answer. Don't have to read the book. Same thing here. I found out where they started. Now all I have to do is find out where they end and then see what's in between. 
But answer for me really quick. Why does he eliminate the sun? And obviously he eliminates the moon, doesn't he? The sun and moon are instituted at Genesis 1, 17, 19. They are seen by the angelic realm, Job 38, 6 through 7. That becomes a critical verse, a tremendous controversy in theological circles about when the angels are uh, formed by God, when they're created. And there are lots of pieces to put together. I think it'll be clear if you keep doing that, that you will find that the angels were there before the two great lights. And that means they had to be there before the earth, which puts them in a pretty interesting place. And I hope I solved that for you today. But Job 38, 6 through 7 tells us that, that the foundations of the creation, the earth, the two great lights were seen by the angels. And it's great. The lights are great as, the, as God defines great. So how does God define great? There's your first clue. They're great. What is great to God? Are you great? Is Worcestershire sauce great? This could cost me some money right here. Does God define it as great? It's one of the great sadnesses of the aging process of mine. I loved Worcestershire sauce. I would put it on a spoon and sip it. It was fan- I would have things. I would put Worcestershire sauce on anything because I liked it so much. Ice cream, for example. I mean, uh, one of my favorites. I'm kidding about that. I cannot taste it at all anymore. Lost it completely. You know what I can taste? Here's this will make us some money. Hot pockets. I can do that. I can't taste potato chips or french fries. McDonald's french fries. Can't taste them. They taste like cardboard to me. Which is, they have no taste at all. But Hot Pockets and I, we're, we're symbiotic now. We have a relationship. I cannot exist without Hot Pockets. You ever see the Jim Gaffigan routine on Hot Pockets? Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Such is my, uh, uh, my burden in life now. Anyway, where was I? Revelation 22.5 announces the ending of the great lights as God defines great. The only thing that God glorifies is who? Is himself. There is nothing else he can glorify. So great defined by God is equal to glorifying. He can only glorify himself. He is the only one for whom glory can be given. Anything else glory is given profanes it. See the fall of Satan. Anyway, Revelation 22.5 announces the ending of the great lights. Genesis 1.17-19, through 19, the beginning of the great lights. Joel, the prophecy of Joel, documents the final stages of the ending. So we can read Joel 2.10, 2.31, and 3.15 and see the transition as the great light, the sun, begins to uh, end. So to repeat the obvious question that is obvious, why does God stop the sun, remove the sun? Implied in, in this question, I hope you know, is this is the time element. Because the sun, because the sun and the moon are conveying time 
even says so. They divide. It's the purpose of the division. Division is a time component. The sun and the moon are demonstrating time. They are exposing it. They're two pieces of one clock. Or they're two clocks. You get to decide. But in any event, they're counting to a specific time. So I have two separate clocks counting to a specific time, or I have two pieces of one clock counting to a specific time. That's what you ultimately will have to resolve. Hi, Gabriel and Karen. But that once you get that, you just got now more obvious questions that are equally obvious. If the clock stops at Revelation 22.5, it does. Why does it stop at Revelation 22.5? Why not just let it keep going? Do you like the sun? In Alaska, boy, this is the time of year where we go, what sun? What do we got? Three hours and 40 minutes of sunlight right now? There's nothing on the, on the North Slope. There's zero. You're, you're back from the North Slope, aren't you? Uh, how much daylight you got up there now? Wow. That's cool. I'll explain that to the audience. Uh, Nick says that the North Slope, where he works, gets gray for a couple of hours. That's all you get at what used to be called Barrow. I can hardly pronounce what it is now. It's gone. There's no sun there. The good news is that the sun is everywhere eventually for us, but uh, that's why we stay here, to just get through the winter. That's why uh, we started taking the, the middle of the winter or the, the dark period off, because one, no one would come because it's dark or it's snowing or it's a holiday, but two, uh, it allows us to kind of get through that period a little bit. But to repeat, if the clock stops at Revelation 22.5, and it does, why does it stop at Revelation 22.5? And then, what else ends at Revelation 22? The sun as a light source is extraneous. It's demonstrated as extraneous. It's going to uh, be removed, and it's a timepiece, and it's likewise extrinsic at Revelation 22. Joel says it goes dark. What does that tell you? And if the sun no longer produces light, then what happens to the moon? Is the moon actually a light source? No, it's not. The moon is reflective. It has, it has reflective light. It never has any light producing capability. And that's something that the angels who saw this system put in place, they must have recognized that both fallen and unfallen. And they, they had to also figure out, I believe, very quickly what the purpose and the meaning of this is. They're witnesses to the creation of the sun and the moon. They had to think that it was for them. What other conclusion would they have? And they were right. It is for them. It's for mankind, but it is for the angel. And Revelation is attesting to the expiration of the sun and the moon. If you wish to think of it this way, perfectly acceptable, the death of the sun. The Bible says the sun will end. And Jesus Christ himself replaces the sun with himself. 
The symbol is pulled aside to reveal the person who is symbolized. The great light symbolizes Christ. It has to, just because of the definition of the word great. Therefore, the lesser light. They're both great lights, but one is great, one is lesser. Who is the lesser? Who did the angels think the lesser was? Who does man think it is? In Genesis, darkness is described. That's how we start Genesis. In the beginning, Christ, I'm sorry, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness. That's how we start. So the earth is described in Revelation, I'm sorry, in Genesis as darkness. In Revelation, darkness is never more. There is no more darkness. So darkness ends. The clock runs to its determined end. Darkness is gone forever in the heavens and the earth, Revelation 22. The implication being is that I have darkness in heaven. In Genesis 1, the sun and the moon, the great lights are placed. In Revelation 22, both of them are removed. The night, I'm sorry, the light of life is now the only light there is. Stop and consider how man and angel think of the sun. Because I don't think we think of the sun the same way. Do you expect the sun will rise tomorrow? By rise, what we consider rise, whether that's accurate or not, cosmologically. Do you think the sun will be visible tomorrow? Why is it visible? Is it it visible because it is operating on its own? Is it independent? Is it sovereign? Is it autonomous? How does it work? Almost forgot. Genesis is the big, just got lucky now. Genesis is the beginning. Revelation is the ending. One of the things that begins in Genesis is light. One of the things, that, or the, in this case, the sun. One of the things that ends in Revelation is light. So you start to see this beginning and ending that occurs in Genesis and Revelation. Of many things, make a list. There's a, uh, to repeat, there's a, the symmetry between Genesis and Revelation is astonishing. Who could write it? If one were to limit itself just to the Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and Revelations chapters 19 through 22, put them side by side, it is beyond obvious that Revelation 19:22 resolves Genesis 1 through 3. It's almost like they're written by the same guy, but they aren't. They're 1,500 years apart, and they're two different guys. Now, how did that happen? If you want to, and most do, they, they would say to you that, you know, the Apostle John, did he conspire with Moses? Well, he couldn't have. If he did, that's a supernatural situation as well. There certainly is an opportunity for them to talk to each other. A Mount of Transfiguration, for one. John is called up into heaven for one of Revelation. We have Christ to relate them since he created both of them. But they did not conspire to write the beginning and the ending 1,500 years apart. Why would John write the conclusion to Genesis? What would make him do it? 
Let's concede that John was a brilliant scholar of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Probably was. Let's go ahead and, and assume that he studied the manuscripts at length. Probably did. Eventually, he chose to write and author a manuscript that would bring termination to the extraordinary issues of Genesis 1 through 3. That's what he did. And he did it in Revelation uh, 19 through 22. So we could conceive of such a, po- a possibilities uh, that that might happen. He read one through three. He says, "I've got to, I've got to, I've got to conclude that. This is the problem. Here is the solution. This is the cause. This is the effect. I'm going to take care of it. Tie it up in a nice bow. That's what he did." When they first saw the book of Revelation, Martin Luther, as you know, said, no, Revelation doesn't belong in the Bible. Makes no sense. Let's get rid of it. He wanted to get rid of James. Saw them as problematic. When these these guys got together and looked at the book of Revelation, they knew it was Apostle John that wrote it. Okay, it's in. Where do we put it? I don't know where to put it there. Boy, they're lucky. Have you read the book of Revelation? Does it make any sense to anybody with a monistic, atheistic, physicalism philosophy? No. Absolutely is inexplicable. Only makes sense when you see the Christology of it. But even if you said, okay, John deliberately looked at Genesis 1 through 3 and, and decided to bring it all up into a fulfillment in Revelation 19.22, that's okay. We'll give you that. Now, just go on and explain chapters 1 through 18 of Revelation. You have now have a, that exercise becomes immediately grueling and demanding. Attempts to explain Genesis and Revelation through natural processes is doomed. It's quickly eliminated, discarded. There's only one lone possibility, and that is the supernatural, the spiritual, the inspirational power. And that's all that's left. I'm sorry about that. Not really... Fake sorry. That's it. Okay, where was I? Jesus Christ replaces the nuclear fusion device, the sun, the greater light with himself. That's what he's doing. So again, why is he doing it? Why not just leave it there and say, see that? That's a symbol of me is going to stay there. And you're going to remember that I did that. And that's really, that's really a system that I designed and that I that consists in me, and I'm going to leave it there as a testimony of me. He doesn't do that. He eliminates it, and he replaces it with himself, making it indisputable that God himself is the light of the world, the only light. So all of you who want to get a tan, you don't have the sun anymore. You're laying out there getting your tan. What's the light source? Christ himself. How does it make you feel? Just asking. It's indisputable that God himself replaces the light with himself. He is the only light of the world. There is only light. There is no darkness. That's what he's doing. That's why he put them in place in the first order, and that's why he does what he does in Revelation. And mankind, has a, mankind, as you know, has a long history of worshiping the sun as God. They were really close. The sun is not God. 
It is placed there by God to demonstrate God's light of life. Egypt comes to mind, obviously. It certainly is not the singular nation. Many ancient civilization had, uh, civilizations had sun deities. Modern humanity, if there's such a thing, assumes the sun. It's a yellow dwarf, as they have so de- uh, described it, uh, the yellow dwarf that it is. They, they assume that the sun is merely a physical system or device that occurs completely by coincidence, happenstance, luck. Fortuitous. They ignore and they pay no attention to the fine-tuning aspects of it all, of the, of the relationship between the sun and the earth and the atmospheric elements of it. They pay no attention to any of that. And they pay no attention to the sun's processes. How does the sun work? That is a great mystery. That remains unexplained. Study the mystery of how the sun does what it does. You'd be fascinated by it. It's almost a perpetual motion machine, which we know is impossible physically. Well, how interesting is that? If it is a perpetual machine, because that's the question, why doesn't it burn out? Why doesn't it exhaust its fuel source? How does it continue? How old is it? How old was it? All those, all those questions become pertinent. We humans have mostly constructed explanations of our world. When I say we, I mean the general we of our world that are uh, constricted or compressed into a natural framework. By natural, I mean godless. I mean materialism, reductionism. The sun is seen as a machine that has, as I said, perpetuity and that it exists without interference. It accomplishes the tasks of providing light and heat without any controlling mechanism. It just is. That philosophy is somewhat a relative of the quasi-agnostic philosophy that says that God is unknowable and that God may have created, but he has disengaged himself and allowed his creation to run on its own, in which case to run amok. And God is exhibiting right now no influences, no control, and no interest in his his creation. He's not involved in it. Therefore, the sun is an autonomous uh, entity, as is gravity, etc. Man is left on his own devices, in other words. That (coughs) philosophy is very ancient, uh, and I don't... uh, I don't dismiss it lightly, though it is dismissible and easily dismissible. That seems like a contradiction of lightly. I recognize how many people believe what I just said is true. That yes, we will grant the complexity, the fine-tuning, all of this extraordinary truce with regard to biology and physics. And we'll say that that points to a God, but he is not involved. He's left the building with Elvis. Not here. What happens here is now left to the devices of man. 
Revelation 22 disassembles this line of so-called reasoning. Jesus Christ will assume the role. The greater light will be the greater light. He is the greater light already, but he will then remove the greater light and put himself in that positioning so that everyone will know that he was always there in that position to begin with. And that will make sense if you think about it. The Son is and has always been a symbol of Christ and will reveal this truth at Revelation 22. The restoration of all things, the eternal order. That is what Revelation 22 is saying, is depicting. Thus, now we have subsequent obvious questions, which are also obvious. The Son is inside of time. Genesis 1.16, duh, it's a clock. So what predates the sun as a light source? Has to be a light source before the sun. How come there has to be a light source before the sun? That's the Ezekiel 28 question for those of you who have already leaped there. If you wish, what is the source of light at the mineral Eden? You might remember the fiery stones. Satan walks as the king of Eden, the mineral Eden. He walks in the midst of the fiery stones. What makes the stones fiery? Does fire make them fiery? That's plasma. That's 28, 14 through 16 of Ezekiel. The mineral Eden is described as being covered in stones, minerals, as a really quick aside, the breastplate of the high priest of Israel has the first three stones in Ezekiel 28:13 in the first row of the breastplate. How many think that's a coincidence? Please never raise your hand there. Probably also coincidental and nothing of significance. God... Uh, he probably couldn't remember the stones of the mineral Eden. And so he just accidentally put them into the breastplate. And also, where else does he put them, these stones? Thank you, I see that. He puts them in Revelation 21, 18 through 21. Contains these stones. The New Jerusalem is described as having incorporated the stones of Ezekiel 28. Not an accident. So, Satan walked amongst light that was not the sun. And those lights are in the new, new Jerusalem and depicted, demonstrated in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. And a lot of people believe that that's accidental. So move along, nothing to see here. Instead of start to start to study the mineral Eden, the breastplate of the high priest in the new Jerusalem. You put those all together and you have more information about what the purpose of the sun is and the moon and the stars. See how easy this is? Obviously, God has put these the mineral Eden and the breastplate and the new Jerusalem together. He's connected them. So study that. Sit down. Bring a lunch. Plan to stay a while. Years. And all of Cliffside attendees of at least the last 20 years will remember this subject as a component of the abodes of Satan. 
uh, or um, the trail of a serpent through time is also called that as well. And that's probably a little bit more accurate. Satan is shadowed in scripture. His moments are recorded. The mineral Eden was his second position. He was put there second. In total, he has six distinct specific locations. The final, the sixth, is the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10. What is the lake of fire also called? Think about that for a second. Imagine, if you will, how Satan and the angels respond to the fact that his locations are defined in Scripture. Do you think he's read it? Looked at it and go, okay. To date, Satan has fulfilled three of them. The first three have been perfectly accurate. How's the math going now? The first two had no human witnesses. So how did they become known? How did Ezekiel learn about Satan's first, or I'm sorry, second abode? First and second, actually. When the fourth occurs, Revelation 12, 7 through 12, what will they think, the angels and Satan? There's a fantastic verse in Revelation 12, 12. You know it. I've done it to you many times. It is fantastically fun. How I define fun. Let me read it to you. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. That's the war in heaven between Michael, the forces of Michael, and the forces of Satan. Satan is defeated. And now Satan knows that he has a short time. That's unbelievable. How does he know? Because he's gone through three abodes. When he's thrown to earth, that's his fourth location, his fourth estate. All four of them have happened in order. It's mathy. He can do mathy stuff. The first three had passed in order, completed, discharged, is written. Now the fourth, Revelation 12, 12, will come as predicted, as given. And, com- and therefore, now Satan can compute the timing of the fifth and the sixth. What's the sixth? The lake of fire. What's the fifth? The abyss. How long is he in the abyss? thousand years. Do you think he knows that? Right now, he's in the third. How long does he get to be in the third? In the third? Well, he can tell time. What's he waiting for? What does the fallen angels think? What do the unfallen think? He knows that whoever, he's read the book. He knows he's got a short time. He's only got the, he's in the fourth. He's got the fifth and he's got the sixth. Time's running out. That's how he knows. He knows the author of the book is not restricted by time. And, and, and he also knows that omniscience is not causation. No time today uh, to address the quantum uncertainty principle, which is what I just said to you. Omniscience is not causation, is quantum uncertainty. Final thought on the sun and moon for today. Still have a list to get to. 
probably cover this now. Knock it out here. Final thought on the sun and moon for days. Still have a list to get to. Where's my chairing section? You're right there. Somebody should. Yeah. Let me see who uh, who has fulfilled Joni's prerogatives. <sighs> Let the record show that the chairing section was not particularly uh, enthusiastic. The, the moaning try a little louder than the cheering. Why is that so? I shall persevere. The angels saw the earth in darkness covered in water, and they saw all of a sudden light hit it and yield life. The angels saw the, the sun and the moon and the stars, and they sang. As soon as they saw the sun and the moon and the stars come to the earth that is in darkness, and the light of life begin to yield life, they sang, Job 38.7. What did they think? What did they sing? Did all of them sing? Or just two-thirds? The sun, the moon, and the stars also burst into existence. I flipped the board so you can't see the also. From nothing. And that was seen by the angels who sang. Job 38.7 said that they sang for joy. So what's implied? More information. Why were they joyful? The angels are spiritual beings. This is a physical act. The earth was dark and covered with water. The light of life comes. The sun and the moon and stars are set in the firmament. And the angels shout with joy, all of this light has come. How many stars are there? Start counting. Use your phones. How many are there? There are trillions and trillions of stars. And I submit that they sing with joy over the light that they saw because they're in darkness. What's the next obvious of the obvious questions? How long have they been in darkness? And again, I'm, I'm proposing that they're singing in joy over the light, which if I am right, gosh, why do I have to say that? Then the darkness must have been especially pervasive prior to this, a shocking, demoralizing condition which means the darkness has prevailed. It has what? It has ruled. I shouldn't have flipped the board. The darkness has ruled for time. How long? But now light was come to rule over the darkness. Though the darkness remains, the darkness is not totally eradicated, not totally defeated until Revelation 22.4. But in Genesis 1.16 through 19... That's probably just a squirrel burrowing itself in here to get at the buffet. Or it's the heaviest snowfall we're going to get in a long time. One of those two. Genesis 1, 16, 19. Darkness is attacked. Counteroffensive, if you will, by light. On what day is it attacked? The fourth day. That's how we get to the list. What else has happened on the fourth day? Just asking. God seems to have a pattern. Seven days, the fourth day of the seven days. Puts the sun and moon up. Also the Passover lamb. Also the crucifixion of Christ. The descending of Christ from Adam. Resting from the response of the dark, to the darkness on the seventh day. Obviously, one should compare where angels exhibit great joy over the resistance to evil. When God or when good defeats evil. 
And the foremost example is Revelation 12, 7 through 12. The dragon is cast out of his third estate down to what? Fourth estate. So I see this pattern of things of light coming on the fourth day all over Scripture. And when the angels kicked him out on the fourth, to his fourth estate, what did they do? Incredible joy, rejoicing, probably sang. What song? Probably same song. Because they sang when the light came to darkness and they sing when Satan is gone, is, is, is cast down. What are the chances there is connectivity, symmetry? The meaning of the sun and the moon and also the stars was not lost on the heavens who remained in the heavenly realm in obedience to God. They knew that a war between light and darkness had erupted. Darkness was apparently prevailing for some time. How long? I ask that again. But God joined the battle, if you will. That's a humanistic approach to it. Understand that. I'm just saying it just to make you understand, try to get some kind of uh, grasp on it. And now all of a sudden light has exploded. All at once, it abounds. As I said, there's trillions and trillions and trillions of lights. Start counting them. Then there's the greater light. What's the meaning of all of that to the angels? Finally, this is really the all-time most favorite word at Cliffside. Jesus Christ, finally. Jesus Christ, the light of light, the only resurrection, waits two days. In, here's our list. Waits two days in order to resurrect Lazarus, whom he loves, on what day? The fourth day. You think that's, you think he doesn't know that he put the sun and the moon in in the fourth day? He's dragging us back. to Christ is glad. He's rejoicing because he's about to put his absolute infinite deity on full display for his apostles. So he's glad about that. For Martha and Mary and for the Jews and his beloved Jewish brethren and for Lazarus. And what's going to happen when he does it? Belief. Belief is going to happen. Many will believe in him, John eleven forty five. They will believe he is the resurrection and the life. He asked Martha, do you believe I am the resurrection and the light of life? Do you believe that? The light of the world, the light which overcomes the darkness of death. Do you believe me? He knows as soon as he pulls Lazarus out, belief. That's why we do candlelight services. We're going to do a candlelight service. What's the candlelight say? That you have what inside of you? Light. The light of life. But some did not believe, John eleven forty six. These will go to the serpents, the brood of vipers, Matthew twenty three, thirty three, the Pharisees, those who cannot escape God says to them, Christ says to them, that you cannot escape the condemnation of hell. Well, again, let me ask you, what is one of the characteristics of the lake of fire? Darkness. Where does darkness go? It's removed from the eternal order. Where is it now? It's moved. It's not on the earth. It's not in the heavens. He moves the darkness. The utter outer darkness. So again, there's this conflict shown. 
in Lazarus here. The joy and gladness of Christ positioned alongside the groaning and the weeping of God, Jesus God, Jesus Christ. The Jews, John 11:36, assumed horribly wrongly that Christ was weeping for Lazarus. I hope it's on the, on the uh, list here. hope I'm doing it without having to circle it. But he's not weeping for Lazarus. God was weeping for the Jews who thought he was weeping for Lazarus. It's really incredible. I have a note to read it. I guess I will. Just to pound it in since you're not going to hear this for a few weeks. Therefore, then, when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews who came to her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? That's an incredible mystery right there. And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Another great mystery. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him, meaning Lazarus. And some of them said, could not this man... Who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying. Is that a compliment? Probably not. Who are these guys? You think these are nice people just wandering around going to a funeral? I said a few weeks ago, what are the likelihood that they have been uh, compromised? Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone is laid in front of it. It's a cave. How much light is in there? Jesus said, take away the stone. The stone goes away, and the cave is exposed to who? The light. I want you to notice the order. Mary's weeping, the Jews are weeping, Jesus groans in the spirit and was troubled. What does that mean? Cause and effect. And you can't, cause and effect cannot be reconciled with omniscience. It's just a human way of explaining it. I just want you to see the order. Mary weeping, Jews weeping, Jesus groans in the spirit. The weeping causes the groaning in a humanistic way of thinking, which is completely heretical and blasphemous. But you get the point, I hope. I'll get some dispensation later. The weeping causes the groaning and trouble in God. And it's a horrible way of saying it, but it's all I got today. Then what happens next? Can't say that because that's a time reference. God is outside of time. Get all of that? Then God asks a question. Omniscient God who knows all things asks, where have you laid him? Where have you put Lazarus? He knows where Lazarus is. Why does he ask that? They say, Lord, come and see. And what does he do? Shortest verse in all the Bible. Jesus wept over that. So, where have you laid him? Come and see. Weeping. Where did they bury Lazarus? How am I doing here? Good, almost done. Where did they bury Lazarus? Tell me. What do you think? Local cemetery? Oh, this is going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, we've been doing tiling on our knees. Ask me how that goes. Where did they bury Lazarus? Out here at the local cemetery where everybody's buried? Did they put him in the common area? And who are these that buried or entombed Lazarus? Because that's more correct. Are they believing or unbelieving? 
They make their creator weep and groan in sorrow. They accuse Christ of being unable to keep Lazarus from death, from dying. John eleven thirty seven. Why did they publicly imply that Christ was powerless over death? Because that's what they said. If these who said this are who? That's right, Pharisees, which is likely the case, hidden in the midst of the Jews, infiltration, seeking to kill God because that's their plan. Where do you suppose they put Lazarus? And by the way, they would have to be the ones who did what to Lazarus? If they laid him, who are they? They're going to have to be the ones that put the grave clothes on Lazarus, wrapped him up, and then Christ makes them unwrap him. That would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? It's exactly what he would do, isn't it? Did a Pharisee, I thought it, I didn't say it, did a Pharisee put the grave cloth, the grave clothes on Christ? And the folded face cloth? Yeah. Nicodemus. There is this common belief, one which I have repeated, as you might have heard me do, that Lazarus was in a common burial area. I don't think so. I repeat it because it's a powerful way of illustrating something. That Christ had to specifically call Lazarus by name in order to not resurrect the entire cemetery. You've heard me say that. Because he could have resurrected the entire cemetery. But he doesn't. He resurrects Lazarus. What then is the likely explanation? Lazarus is the only one in that cemetery that is saved. If that's true, who's in the cemetery? Where did the Pharisees who wrapped him in grave clothes, where did they put him? Come and see. He weeps. They buried or they entombed Lazarus with who? I don't have to answer that, do I? You already figured it out. 